Who is Jesus? That question was finally answered in chapter 8 by Peter, Jesus' disciple, when Jesus says, you are the Christ. That means that you are the promised Messiah. From that point to the end of the book, the question then changes. The question then is, is what type of Messiah is Jesus going to be? That's, that's the big question now. And Jesus himself actually answers this, question, answers this question, not once, but three times when he predicts that he will suffer and he will die and he will raise on the third day. So what we find is, is this. He, he basically tells them, hey, listen, I'm not going to be the type of Messiah that you are expecting I'm not going to come. I'm not going to be this militant king. Instead, I'm going to come and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and give my life as a ransom for many. Now, from chapter 8 and verse 22 to the end of chapter 10, right? There is one section in the book of Mark. And here's what happens during that. In that, we see that Jesus and his disciples are journeying. They're on the road, or more specifically, on the way to Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem where Jesus will experience his suffering. So Jesus and his disciples are making their way uh, uh, on that particular road. And on the way, Jesus is teaching them what type of Messiah he is. But he's also teaching them what type of disciples they ought to be. And he lets them know very clearly. He says, listen, the way of the master is going to be the way of the servant and of the disciple. He goes, I suffered for righteousness' sake, therefore you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. He says very clearly to them that discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, is not about self-promotion. It's not about self-exaltation or self, being self-centered. Instead, it is about being servant. It's about serving, suffering, and humility. That's what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. Now, what's been interesting is on this journey... The greatest examples that we see of a heart of a true disciple really are not evidenced in the heart of Jesus' 12 disciples at all. Instead, they're found in evidence by people that we would be most unlikely to think that they would truly have the heart of a disciple. We've seen the hearts of disciples in children. We see them in a completely unknown and unnamed servant. And we also see, the, the, the final place that we see it is where we're going to see it today is in the life of a blind beggar. That's where the heart of a disciple is going to be shown for us to emulate and for us to be able to ultimately understand. Now, to catch you up, I know uh, what we do is we work through the scriptures here, just kind of verse by verse, and I understand that sometimes if you weren't here the week before, sometimes it's a little confusing. I try not to make it that way, but this is going to be connected and preached in light of last week, the passage that's just right before it. Last week, Two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, come to Jesus, and they make this outlandish request, okay? We're going to get into that in just a little bit. But what we saw last week was this was not the way you want to approach Jesus, all right? Would you agree for you? This is not the way we want to approach Jesus when we have a request of him. Today, we're going to see how it is that a disciple of Jesus Christ is to approach Jesus with the request that we have for him. And so there are going to be three things we see specifically in our passage, in this passage, on how we ought to approach Christ. First of all, we approach Jesus with desperate perseverance. We approach Christ with desperate perseverance. Now notice in verse 46, it says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, a beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So what Mark tells us is the last city that's mentioned before Jesus gets to Jerusalem is Jericho, which would have rested approximately 18 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. So they're not real far away at this particular point. 
And, and, and Mark tells us that the event that's about to occur occurs while Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. But they're not alone. The Bible says that there was a great crowd with them. Now, Jesus is, large crowds, great crowds are not foreign to Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he seems to have a big crowd. But this particular crowd was, would have been made up, really, of pilgrims who had been marching to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. So here they are, they're all on their way, and when they do, they, all of a sudden, they really are interrupted by a blind beggar. Now, notice something in the text. He uses the word, there was this blind beggar, and he was by the roadside. Now, that's significant, because what Mark is telling us is this, is everybody who is a true disciple of Jesus Christ is on the road, not on the side of the road. So right now, we understand that this blind beggar is not a true disciple of Jesus Christ. It's Mark's telling us and hinting us toward this. Now, Mark does something unusual. He actually gives us the name of the blind beggar. He lets us know that this blind beggar's name was was Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Now, remember, throughout the book of Mark, rarely ever does Mark really give us the names of the people that Jesus is healing. Rarely ever. It's always, you know, the woman with the issue of blood. It's always the crippled man or the blind man. And so he never gives us names. Here he gives us a name. Now, why is that? Well, most scholars suggest this reason. They believe that Timaeus was influential and well-known in the first century church. So when Paul is giving this information to Mark, and as he's writing all this out, and they get to this point, it's almost like this. They're writing, and they go, then there was a blind beggar. You know who? You know Bartimaeus. Remember, you guys all know Bartimaeus? Yeah, we know Bartimaeus. Here's his testimony. So what it would have done is it would have drawn those hearers, those first century hearers, in even more because they want to hear the story about this guy that they know about. Now, notice the next verse in verse 47. He says, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So what Bartimaeus lacks in eyesight, he makes up for in insight. This guy has better sight than those with 20-20 vision. He can see spiritually better than just about anybody else that we've seen in the entire book. He's able, now there's no doubt to me that he's heard about Jesus. Or else he couldn't have cried out to Jesus. How will they call on him in whom they have never heard? Jesus, he's calling out. Salvation is happening in the heart of this man right now. So he's about to call out to Jesus. And it's because he has heard about Jesus. He's heard all he's done. He's heard all these miracles and the power of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that he's even heard that Jesus had the power to be able to heal a blind man. So with all of this information, and you know, as a blind beggar, you don't have a whole lot to do during the day. You just sit there and you beg blindly. That's what you do. And so you have a lot of time to internalize things, right? And so here he is on the side of the road internalizing, thinking of all that he's heard about Jesus. And he comes to a very powerful, very important conclusion. He comes to the truth and the belief that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. Now, how do we know that? Well, notice what he calls him. He says, Jesus, son of David, ever since the time of King David. It was known and believed amongst God's people that there would be one who came from the line of David that would ultimately come and be the the, the rescuing Messiah that God had promised them. And they got that from a prophecy found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. There, um, Samuel writes, God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever through David. So they're all expecting, all the Jews are expecting, listen, hey, this guy looks promising, but is he from the line of David? Yeah, he's from the line of David. Okay, great. Or no, he's not. And so they were expecting this Messiah to come from that line. So when he calls out, 
when he says Jesus, son of David, he's recognizing that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But he doesn't stop there. He not only knows who Jesus is, he also knows what type of Messiah he's going to be. Do you notice that second part of that? He says, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. Remember we said several times that the Jews believed that the Messiah that was to come, that when he came, that he would do what? Crush sinners, judge sinners. And here he says, listen, I don't see you as this judging, crushing, killing sinners. I see you as one who comes to bestow mercy on sinners. Do you see that? So catch what happened here. This guy's the first guy in the book who is so easily and so quickly answered the two primary questions in the book. The first was, who is Jesus? He says he's the Messiah. He says, what kind of Messiah is he going to be? He is going to be a suffering Messiah that extends mercy to those who are around him. This guy is brilliant. This guy has amazing faith. But some really didn't find it all that amazing. Some really didn't appreciate a good bit of faith in the heart of this man. You know, it's, it's amazing to me because as though this guy didn't have enough obstacles in his life, He's blind, he's poor, every day he's got to beg just for enough, just enough clothes to keep him warm so he doesn't freeze to death, just enough food to be able to get him by that day. We, we understand that this guy has all kinds of obstacles in his life, that now he gets yet another obstacle that seeks to keep him from calling out to Jesus. We see this, the Bible says that when he calls out to Jesus first, verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Now guys, you don't want to heckle a blind beggar. All right, and that's what these guys are doing. I went and had the privilege of going to, are you, you know, it would not kill some of y'all just to smile every once in a while. It just wouldn't. It wouldn't kill me, all right? But, but we went, I'll just keep, just got, you just got to keep moving on, Joyce. That's what you got to do. I can't make them listen, all right? And so we're, what do you mean? You're, you're probably like me, right? I'm watching a show. My wife is laughing like crazy. She looks at me, I'm like this. And she goes, what are you doing? She goes, why aren't you laughing? Oh, I'm laughing. I'm laughing on the inside. All right, that, okay, I'm just going to take that from y'all. Keep moving. We're at the Jaguar game. And as we're at the Jaguar game, you know, it is hotter than blazes out there. And we're out there, and they are passing. And I, I thought it would be neat to wear a black shirt. And I'm just dying. And all of a sudden, I feel for these guys, you know, they're selling peanuts. They're making peanuts by selling peanuts, right? And here's a poor guy sweating like crazy. He's, he's peanuts, get your peanuts, get your peanuts. Up and down these things all day. And finally, there's a guy behind me. And he sits there and goes, hey, I don't think you ID'd that woman. You didn't see her ID. It's, that's illegal selling peanuts to an underage minor. And people start laughing. I'm like, dude, you can't heckle a peanut guy. You know, this is like, I mean, this is, I mean, poor guy. He's selling peanuts for a living. Leave the guy alone. And here's this guy. All of these kind of confrontation, everything against this guy, opposing him, keeping him, and guess what happens? Even more is piled on. Now, why is it that they want this guy to be quiet? Well, there's a couple possibilities here. Number one, it could be that they're rebuking him for identifying Jesus as the son of David. Some didn't believe that he was, he was the Messiah, and they didn't want him calling him such. Another thing that could be happening here is just very simply is they're in a hurry. Okay, they're in a hurry, and there's a bunch of men trying to get their families. You know how that is, ladies, right? Everybody in the car, let's go. Where are we going? We're going to go have fun, but right now, until we get there, it's not going to be fun. Get in the car, right? So they're all trying to get to, to Jerusalem, and, and everybody's got to get going. So what they say is they're upset because they want to go to Jerusalem, and this guy with Jesus, and they're just kind of slowing him up. Thank God for fathers, right? 
And so, but there's a third possibility, and the third possibility is they just don't find this very, uh, they find it inappropriate, uh, you know, kind of a, a little bit um, inappropriate to yell. I'm the type that gets embarrassed very easily. Um, so if I'm around like a large group and people are like, hey, I'm like, hey, man, just <laughs> quiet down, dude. You know, let's just, let's just be quiet. Let's not say anything. Let's just, let's just chill, right? Uh, if Jesus was coming by, this is how I would have called that. Hey, Jesus. Hey, Jesus. Hey, be quiet. I would have just been, okay, man, I'll be quiet. I won't, I won't say anything. I'll just kind of sit back and, and, and be whatever. So maybe his family or maybe people that knew him, other beggars or something, like, man, be quiet, dude. Don't draw any more attention to us than needs to be made. The truth of the matter is we don't know why it is that they condemn this man. But this is one thing that is very clear in the word of God, and that is when you seek to call out to Jesus, when you seek to follow on the way of Jesus, there will always be a myriad of obstacles that seeking to keep you from doing so. Do you get that? I'm telling you, if you're here today and you're like, I need to follow Jesus, there's going to be someone, something, some event, some whatever that's going to do all they can to be able to keep you from following him. And for many, there are too many obstacles. There are too many things, and they stop seeking him. They stop following him. The key is we may have all of these things, but we cannot stop. Fortunately, he doesn't stop either. What does he begin to do? He cries out all the more, but he cried out all the more. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. You'd love this picture, do you not? Right? Son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up, blind man. <clears throat> Son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up, blind man. And he just keeps going and going and going and going, and he won't stop. Why? He's desperate. He knows that nobody else has the power to be able to help him except for Jesus Christ. And these are obstacles. But when he's the only answer, there is no obstacle that will keep you from getting what it is that you need and what you want. So he refuses to shut up. Here's what I love in verse 49. Notice Jesus' response, and Jesus stopped. Are there any sweeter words in the word of God? Jesus stopped. Second time we've seen him do this. Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. So there are two facts that we see about Jesus. That the fact that he stops when this man calls out to him, not once but twice. First, Jesus responds to desperate faith. This man is poor, he is powerless, he is desperate, he has nothing to offer Jesus, he has nothing to bargain with him on. He's, he's, he's a beggar, he's got nothing. He's coming empty-handed. And Jesus stops and responds, why? Because it's the exact way we must come to him. Do you remember what he's fulfilling? He is a picture of Jesus' teaching back in Mark chapter 13 through 16. Jesus said to them then, it says, and they were bringing the children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to, to them belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Why does Jesus stop? Because he comes as a little child. This man could do nothing for himself. He can't even feed himself. And he is in a perfect condition to be helped by Jesus. Jesus stops. He's not only, he's, he, he's not, as the word of God, he's not only desperate, he's also persevering. Number two, Jesus likes persevering faith. Have you ever known in the scriptures, when Jesus rebukes people, it's not because of so much their little faith so much, it's just the fact that they have no faith. You remember the disciples, and this is what's so great about going through a book like we do, remember all these stories together, unless you're just, you weren't here, but it's okay, you know this story. Remember the Jesus Walking on the water story, or, or excuse me, wrong story. Uh, Jesus stilling the storm story, right? He gets in the boat, he's exhausted, he falls asleep. Get my 
Jesus water stories, right? And they get into the boat and they go across. He falls asleep. All of a sudden, a huge storm is coming. And all of a sudden, the water begins to billow. The wind begins to blow. They begin to, they're they're in fear that they're going to die. And, And what do they do? They cry out, Jesus, don't you care for us? Jesus, we're about to die and all you do is sleep right there. Don't you care for us? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And Jesus rebukes. He rebukes those with no faith. But it really catches his eye when people have persevering faith. We have seen this time and time again in the word of God. Do you remember in Mark 2? And I'm sure you do because you remember everything that I preach. Mark 2, right? Remember Mark Mark 2? There's a blind man. Or excuse me, a lame man. I need to get this right. He's a lame man, blind, lame, whatever. He's, he's lame. And by lame, I mean he can't walk, not that he's dumb, all right? And so, and by dumb, I don't mean blind or deaf or whatever. I'm so confused right now. So they get the guy, and what does he do? He wants to come to Jesus. Four of his faithful friends come to him. They take him to Jesus, but they can't get in. Why? Because the house is packed. They can't get in. So are they like you and I? Listen, let's not, you know, let's not trouble the master. Let's just go home. You know, we're too dignified for this. No, they go up on the roof of the house and they rip some joker's roof off, right? They just rip it off. And then they take the guy and they lower him down and they put him in the feet of Jesus. Jesus stops, he responds, he heals the man. Then we have another story. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? Remember this? Jairus' daughter, they're all doing this kind of thing. This woman comes up, and remember, everything is against her. She's had an issue. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She is ceremonial and clean. She's not supposed to come in contact with anybody. She has been completely away from her family for 12 years. She has given all of her money to doctors that have done nothing but hurt her. The Bible says that she had suffered much at the hands of the doctors, and it's been all that she had for a specific cure. So this woman is desperate. Jesus is walking by. She comes in, and she even she doesn't even care what people say she works her way through and in her mind and in her heart if i can yet touch the hem of his garment i will be healed she touches jesus stops he says who touched me master what what are you talking about who touched you there's people all over you pulling for you and drawing for you he says no there's power that went out of my body somebody touched me in that faith jesus honored that faith then my favorite story is a seraphonician woman remember this in mark 7 just say yeah all right mark 7 uh, Mark 7 comes, Seraphonician woman, if anything, if anybody had everything against her, she did. Number one, she was a woman. Now, I mean then, not now. If you're a woman, you don't have anything against you. We are, we, you're, you're just as important as we are. In fact, you're more important than we are, okay? All right, just want to make sure we're okay. But back in Jerusalem, what's happening? Women didn't have a big role at all. They weren't viewed as very important and significant at all. And so what do we find there? She is, strike one, she's a woman. Strike two, she's a Gentile. Gentile, strike three, she's a Seraphonician in which the Jews specifically hated and abhorred. But here she is, and she still comes to Jesus. Why? Because she has a need. She has a need that nobody else can meet. So she still comes to Jesus, and she says, I need you to heal my daughter. She's possessed with a demon. Jesus, in essence, says, you're a dog. I got to feed the kids before I feed the dogs. And instead of her going, how dare you, Jesus? I come to you, and you call me a dog. You know what she says? You know how she responds? Here it is. Ruff, ruff. That's right. I am exactly what you say that I am. And she says, but it does not change the fact that I need you. And only you can do what I need. That may be an obstacle. Barking might be an obstacle. You may even call me a dog. Whatever it is, I cannot stop. So what does she do? She keeps going. Listen to me. We understand from the word of God, very clearly in the word of God, 
that those who are desperately and persistently moving towards Christ, it gets his attention. Do you know we have people all over this church? We have just as many just about in the first service this morning. And let me just tell you something. We've got desperate people there. We've got desperate people here. We've got people here who you have no control over your circumstances. You've done everything you can. You've got difficulties. You've got problems. You've got hardships. You've got relationships. You can't reach in and change the heart of your rebellious son or your rebellious daughter. You can't change the heart of your husband who wants a divorce or your wife that wants a divorce. You can't change the heart of your employer who's just condemning you every day. He's not happy. You can't change any of this kind of stuff. You are in absolute need. You can't change your, your physical well-being. You can't change any of this stuff. And what I want to encourage you to do is this, is be encouraged. Be encouraged this morning because you are a perfect candidate for getting help from Jesus Christ. But you don't give up. And, and the words of encouragement are the words that the people actually speak to him after they discourage, they encourage. Here's my words to you. Take heart, get up, he is calling you. That's how we approach Jesus. Number two, we approach Jesus based on his goodness. Now, I want you to understand that there is a clear distinction between Bartimaeus, his heart and condition, how he approaches Jesus, and the disciples. Look over at verse 35 real quick. We see how the disciples approach Jesus initially. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, when Bartimaeus comes, he's, he responds differently. When he first comes, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, let's see the difference between these two. First of all, and how they, how they speak to Jesus is different. The disciples call him teacher. Now, I don't want to make too much of this because we know that the disciples believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But here, they just call him teacher. It's not nearly as exalting as him saying the son of David. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that the disciples didn't believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but here's what I'm possibly suggesting, is that they could very well, just like I do consistently, is to forget just how glorious Jesus is. If not, why in the world would they then ask the question, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you? What they were basically saying is, Jesus, you're nothing more than a glorified genie. We need to rub the bottle. Your job is to be able to grant us the wishes that we are ultimately asking you to be able to do. Now give it to us, teacher, not son of God, not creator of all things, not beginning and end. But teacher, give us what it is that we want you ultimately to do. Now my question is, how do you get to such a point? How do you get to such a point that you can come to the Son of God, that you can come to the Messiah, and you ask the question, give, it, give me whatever it is that I tell you that I ultimately want? How do you get to that point? Simply this way. You get to that point because you believe that you have earned it. You make that kind of request, that kind of arrogant request, because you think somehow you've done enough to where you have earned the right to ask Jesus for whatever it is that you have, and you expect him to be able to do it and to be able to fulfill it. This is exactly, I think, the heart, when we look at the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, we see that story. You guys know the story well. Um, the, the young son, he wants to rebel. He wants to go out and live the, the wild life. He leaves his dad. Hey, give me my money. I want to go live it up. I'm tired of living here in this house. And he says, okay, here you go. He goes off. He lives. He finds out that that kind of living is not living at all. He says to himself, he came to himself. He said, self, uh, this is not right. Let me go back. Even my servants have it better than I do out here. I'm eating the pods of the pigs and then he goes back, and when he goes back, what does the father do? Does he condemn him? No. He runs out to him. He embraces him with open arms. He gives him a ring. He gives him, what, a cloak. He gives him a gown. He, he, he gives, he, they kill the fatted calf. They throw a huge party for him because the son that was lost was now found. But in that story, there is an older brother. And that older brother will not go in and party with the rest of them. 
Why? Because he says this, Luke 15, 29. He says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might create with my friends. Do you hear the arrogant attitude in both of these examples? I deserve something because I have been good. Now notice the difference with with, uh, blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus comes and he says, Jesus, son of David, What is he saying? He's not saying, hey, Jesus, you who are just a little bit above me, teacher, whatever it is. He says, son, son of David, Messiah, promised Messiah. He still sees the very healthy view that Jesus is infinitely greater than he is. Do you understand that that's the view of a disciple? We see that Jesus is infinitely greater. We're, we're, not, we're not becoming overly accustomed with him. If you wear a shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy, you're overly accustomed to Jesus. He's not your homeboy. He's your savior, creator, Lord, king of kings, and Lord of lords. Y'all with me? Thank you very much for being with me at least a little bit, all right? And so here, here we go. And so what does he come, though? He says, have mercy on me. Here's his request. Not give me this based on my goodness. In fact, when he says have mercy on me, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm asking you not to give me what I deserve. Don't give me what I deserve. So then how does he make a request? His request is not based on his goodness. It's based on God's goodness. When we come to him, how do you come to him? You know how you know whether you're basing your request on your goodness or God's goodness? is whether you, how you respond when God says no. When God says no, that's not the right thing for you, and you sit there and you get irritated. Now listen, I know you're not sinful like I am, so let me explain it from a sinner's point of view. When I don't get what I want, you know what I sit back? Sometimes there's a little part of me in that flesh that keeps sitting there and going, I can't believe God wouldn't do this for me. There are people that aren't serving him as much as me and doing as much as I am and being as good as me and raising his kids like I. He's not just, he's just not whatever. And all of a sudden, that sin begins to creep inside of me. And then, of course, fear begins to sit inside. You know by how you respond. If you're angry towards God because he doesn't do what you want, you are basing your request on your goodness and not his. But I want to say something else. There's something even more subtle than that. And that is, you could be sad. You could be sad and you could even cry and you could even begin to wonder, does God really love me because he's not given me what it is that I'm asking? That could be just as prideful and arrogant. Because there, ultimately, what you're saying is that Jesus' love isn't great enough to surpass your sin. His grace isn't great enough. His mercy isn't great enough to be able to be sufficient for you, the sinner, that somehow you're so sinful that his love does not cover you as well. It diminishes God's abounding love and it puts, it puts to question whether he is capable of loving you enough to do the right thing. So be very careful. Whether you're angry or whether you begin to cry and doubt his love, it is still arrogance towards God. And it is still saying that God, I'm asking you to do what I want you to do based on what I want. But here's how it is. You and I must always come to him and say, God, I don't have anything to bring. That's not only the point of salvation. Do you understand? It's the point every time we come to him. Every time we approach him, Jesus still, I've been walking with you for 30 years. I still have nothing for you. Anything that I have has been given to me by you. God, I may have done a few good things for your name, but the only reason I was able to do it is because you changed me. You gave me your spirit. You empowered me to be able to do it. So even in what I do, you still get the glory because I have nothing. That's how we come and approach Jesus, amen? Third thing, approach Jesus recognizing 
that he's enough. Somewhere along the line for James and John, something radically changed. And here it is. For James and John, Jesus just no longer is enough. He's just no longer enough. I I don't know when it happened. I, I don't know what happened here, but for some reason, it's just not enough anymore for them. And we see that this is completely the opposite. Why? Because when they come to Jesus, they ask for him for a seat. It's no longer good for them just to follow Jesus. They want to sit next to Jesus. They want to rule and reign for Jesus. Following him is not enough. This is not the case for Bartimaeus. It says here, it says, Bartimaeus is just happy to be here. Look at verse 15. He says, in throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, let me, let, me, let me just recognize something just very quickly here. He said, isn't he asking for something selfish himself? No. It's completely different. It's not like the selfishness of the disciples. You say, why? Well, when Jesus said, this is how you pray. Pray, God, give us this day our daily bread. He said, pray for those that are things that are essential for life. You know what he's asking for? He's not asking to rule and to reign. He's not asking to be the big wig. He's not asking for some position. You know what he's asking? That which is essential for living, just eyesight. Would you just give me eyesight so I can see, so I could do what you've called me to do, so I can work and make a living for myself in order to be able to feed myself? There's no arrogance in that request. It's just asking for exactly what he's just asking for his daily bread. And then notice this, notice something. It says, and Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. Do you see that phrase? On the way. He is no longer beside the road. He is now on the way. And here's what I want you to understand. He's happy about it. He's just happy about it. He's happy about Jesus calling him and he's happy about, G- about following Jesus. Jesus, you called me, spring up. Throw everything else off. I only own this little cloak. It's the only thing I have. Throw it off. It doesn't mean anything. Jesus is calling me. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, here you are, Jesus, right? I'm just happy to be here. Okay, now follow me. Hey, I'm just, ha- I'm just happy to follow. No request. Can I, can I lead? Can, can, I, can, I be, can I be the master of things? Can I have a position? None of that. So they've lost it. So the disciples have lost Just the idea that Jesus is enough, but Bartimaeus sees Jesus fully and completely that he is more than enough. You know, when I was uh, a youth minister, some of the most wonderful days of my life, when I was a youth pastor, really sowing heresy in the lives of young people, and if anything good were to happen as as of now, it is because of the mere grace of God. But I'll say this, I, I, we had this little weekend, youth weekend, and you know, you got to have the band in, you got to have a cool band, and so, you know, we hired this band, and we didn't have money for a cool band. See, money takes coolness. Some of you are like, why aren't you cooler? We have no money. That's why. So, so we sit there, and you go, okay, so we're going to bring this band in. And so we bring the band in, and, and what was cool about it is, is I love these guys because these guys were just so down to earth. Don't you love that? They're like, hey, man, we'll stay wherever we're. We're like, great, because we can only afford to put you in this little, this little podunk motel up on I-10. That's where you're going to be staying. And guys, all of you have got to kind of, crush into that room oh man that's good man i'm we're just glad we have a hotel that's awesome we said okay and really we don't have a whole lot of extra money we can only pay you a small amount hey man it's cool hey and when you eat you're gonna have to eat with us with like the kids in the cafeteria you're gonna have to eat with us cold pizza everything else you got bro we're just happy we're just happy to be here they got done they served it was great man spirit of these guys were just rocking and at the end again i said man i wish hand them the check wish it could be more and they sat there and said we just love playing thanks for allowing us to have the opportunity we're just glad to be here well 
Several years later, I went to a much bigger church. We had much larger budgets. And so I needed to be able to get a band. But by this time, five years later, this band had hit it big. This band had hit it big. They were all good. I mean, everybody, I mean, people were wearing shirts. And I'm like, yeah, I know those guys. Yeah, I know those guys. I met those guys. Yeah, they're going to come back. That's right. I, I can get them back. Well, I said that before I knew how much it was to get them back. And to save faith, face, uh, uh, to be honest with you, I ended up bringing them back anyway. But these guys, something along the five-year path, something had changed. I don't know really quite what it was. But when they called, they gave me the long list of all the things that they needed to be able to have. What airlines they would fly. What hotel room, what hotels were acceptable. It even got down to the point to where each one needed their own individual room. The food that they wanted was fruit, but it couldn't be canned fruit. It had to be fresh fruit, and it had to be a certain type of fruit. They wanted bottled water, but each bottled water, each one had a different type of bottled water like they ultimately had. They needed their own kind of suites and area where they could be away from, you know, the commoners like you and I, and there had to be security and badge, badges to be able to get there. I mean, I understand some of that is probably important, right? But what happened was, and we even paid them, and we paid them a huge chunk of men, something along the path had changed. What happened to, we're just happy to be here? Guys, do you remember? Here in the text, what we see is, we see one who somehow has lost that, and we see one who is absolutely gripped by it. They're gripped by their love for Jesus. Do you guys remember when you first got saved? I'm not, I'm not necessarily, and I'm not one of these big guys go, do you remember the date, time, hour, month? Was it autumn, spring, summer, fall? What was it? What minute was it? What kind of watch were we wearing? I'm not that kind of guy. Sometimes God saves us like that. Sometimes God saves you, and you're like, it was somewhere between Monday and Saturday or this month and this month. All I know is my heart was completely changed, and I started following Jesus. But, but it didn't happen that way to me. It's okay. You're cool. As long as you show the evidences of salvation is, is, is demonstrating the word of God, hey, that's good. Keep following Jesus, man. That's how you know that you're a believer in Jesus. And so, so, so what happens is, but do you remember? I remember when I first got saved. I was seven years old. And uh, my mom had left and left me and my brother and my sister and my dad. And my dad had come to faith through that. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to a purpose. I may not have come to faith at that point had it not been because of my mom having lived because of the divorce. And so she, she comes and, and so my dad, we get saved. And I'm telling you, God got all of me at seven years old. I was just so excited. And my dad said, we're gonna go to church, but we need to get you some good church clothes, right? So remember, this was back in the 70s, okay? So we go to, we go to Kmart, right? And this is where, remember Kmart would always have like the shoes and they would always be connected and you couldn't get them apart. They didn't come in boxes, they came in bins. Remember that? And you'd put them on your feet and put, put them on. You'd either do this and you'd have to walk around. Any, any of you guys remember this? Or you'd put both feet in and you'd have to walk like this because you couldn't go very far. My dad got me the coolest blue kind of leisure suit, man. Big collar, white big collar over top of it. I was the swankiest looking seven-year-old you've ever seen. And I remember going to that church, and I remember just getting this Bible. I could barely read and getting this Bible and just being overwhelmed by everything. Not Disney World type everything. Just for some reason, my dad would just sit there and go, okay, God is about to speak to us. The word of God is about to be preached, son. God's going to speak to your heart. And then we would sing. And what we'd sing, and we'd just sing all these different types of music. And I remember just feeling so, I really didn't know the songs. I know I was singing off tune, all these kind of things. But it was just overwhelming to me. 
And I remember kind of growing up and everything. And as you begin to grow up, it's such an awful thing because what people begin to do is then this people begin to leave this church and they begin to leave that church and all these kinds of things. And I remember sitting there going, but why, why, why would they leave? Well, they weren't happy. Why? Because Mike, we just didn't have this and we didn't have that. And, and this, you know, they, they wanted something more than, than this. And I remember e- e- even now, I, I got to tell you this, my most frustrating thing about being a pastor um, is for me is, Fortunately, my, my dad was able to have me on the mission field from a very early age and been able to go around the world and, and worship with different people from, from Russia to Germany under communism and, 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 and to be able to go to Venezuela and to be able to go to Mexico several times and be able to go to Poland and spend there for two months and Dominican Republic, all these places. And what happens is you go to all these places and what is just so beautiful is all their worship is all different, but it's just compared to now, you, you, they could never grow a church here in America. And what I found, and this is what my heart so gravitates to, but it lacks so much here, is that for them, Jesus is just enough. In Ethiopia, when they sing their songs, they don't even know any songs. They don't even, missionaries aren't even teaching them songs. They're making up their own song. And they're just singing it. And nobody's sitting back. But, but what happens is something happens to us. In the beginning, we're just happy to be there. But the more on the way, we become more argumentative and more demanding, just like the disciples. I need this, and I need that, and I don't like the way this is. And so what happens for me in a church, it's a miracle of God that, we, that you're even here. We don't have any of that. We're like completely deprived of coolness. I get that. But at the same exact time, I understand that what my question is, is when does just following Jesus and being called of Jesus not enough? I didn't do anything to deserve my salvation. I was lost in rebellion against him. I hated him. I would curse him to his name. If I thought anything about God, it was, the only, it was a false God that I created in my own mind, my own heart. It had nothing to do with the true God. And God, even though I raised my hand towards him and rebellion towards him, in his grace and in his mercy, he saved me. And he changed my heart. And he gave me a soft heart, a heart of flesh, and he removed the heart of stone, and he made me walk in his ways. And then God said, now you're on the way. Read about me. Teach. Tell other people about me. Be within a community of other believers and tell people not only locally, but to go around the world. And that's what we're trying to do, but it just never seems to be enough. What's wrong? What happened? And what's ultimately happened is this, is that we've gone blind. Right before we came in this morning, um, we all sit down and we pray and strategize, strategize. And it's just a wreck. You know, we're just, you know, I, I love that everything just doesn't go well here. It may annoy you, but there's just a part of it going, awesome. All right. Computer freezes up. All right. Air. Who can figure out the air? Can't figure out the air. You know. Sound, they do such an awesome job with all that kind of stuff. We're just not slick here. There's something so refreshing about that. Because I'm not slick in my normal life, right? So we're sitting back, and we're just kind of all talking around kind of the four things. And I sit there, and I go, I go, oh, oh, wait a minute. So I go back into my little cubby, the Holy of Holies, where all my books are, where I study. And I go back in there, and I, and I put my glasses, and I go, that's much better. I say, I see clearly. I go, I, I, I go, you guys look like you were like in a swimming pool or something. I go, I couldn't see you very clearly, 
Now, once time, one, at one time, I had 20-20, even better than 20-20, but something happens, they say, when you turn 40, and then all of a sudden, things start falling apart. And so now, I, I, I wear glasses, but the glasses help me to be able to see. And this is what happened. When Jesus saved you, you saw with 2020, you saw the HD. You saw how awesome he was. You saw how unworthy you are. And it made you love him all of the more. But what happens is as we go over a period of time, our vision begins to sag or whatever it is. And what we need is we need our sight to be restored again. Do you see the difference in what they ask here? The disciples asked for a seat. He asked for sight. Now, I understand he's asking for physical sight, not spiritual sight. Are you tracking with me? But you sit there and go, how dare you try to apply that spiritually when it's a physical uh, uh, healing? But is not, not the authorial intent of the text? Remember in chapter 8 and verse 21, how does he start the section? With the healing of a blind man, restoring sight. What does he do at the very end of the section? He, he ends it with the healing of a blind man, restoring sight. Everything in between is about how we rightly see Jesus. When we come to Jesus and make requests, we must come to him and we must say to him, Jesus, I am making this request of you, but you are enough. If you choose to never remove this from me, you are enough. And you say, well, what if he's not enough? And here's what you do. You cry out and say, give me sight. Give me sight of your glory. Let me see that all of this is worth it because you and you alone are my great reward. You and you alone are my great reward. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you and God, I hate when I get kind of get emotional here. It just drives me crazy. I'm trying to work that out. But God, you can work in spite of it all. God, I pray right now in the name of Jesus. God, I pray that you would open up the eyes of all who are here. Some for the first time, let them see and let them go on the way and follow the path of Jesus Christ. God, let some who are already on that path, God, who are not seeing and who are cantankerous and crotchety and, and complaining in their own lives and they don't see anything good, God, open up their eyes again. Give them spiritual lenses to be able to see how wonderful and glorious you are. And let us be satisfied in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you respond? The altar is open. Would you stand? The altar is open. Will you respond to the preaching of God's word this morning?
I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward. You may be seated at this time, and they're going to come forward to uh, collect the offering. And we want to be faithful uh, to giving and to be able to give to the Lord. Um, and uh, let's, let's go ahead and, and pray. Uh, Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the power of your spirit. We thank you for being in the house of God today. God, there's so much that I believe that is going on in the hearts and lives of each individual. God, what I, what I do pray is that you would soften our hearts and that you would equip us to respond to the preaching of God's word. God, that we will not be amazed by the truth, but we will be amazed by the God of that truth, and that it will lead us by your grace and your mercy to truth, repentance, and reconciliation with you. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We praise you. You are enough. In Jesus' name, amen.